This is Mary Smigelski. I'm sitting here with my partner, Josh Cantro. We are the co-chairs of the Lewis Bruce Boy BIPA Practice Group, and we are going to be talking about some fascinating BIPA-related items, BIPA being the Illinois Biometric Information Privacy Act. So in our last couple episodes, we gave a general overview, and today we want to go a little bit more in depth on some questions that we seem to be hearing consistently from our clients and others. So those questions include, why aren't companies complying with BIPA? And we've heard about the time clock cases, but what other cases are you seeing out there? Where else is there risk for a company? And what are some of the significant unsettled questions? And let's talk a little bit about risk transfer. All exciting topics. I'm ready to dive in. All right, Josh. Well, so let's start with the first one. Why aren't companies complying with BIPA? Well, this is a uh, really key question because as we discussed in prior episodes, BIPA has been on the books since 2008. So one would think this is a mature statute, a mature law, and, and companies are aware of it and they would be complying. But before I get into the answer, I think it's important to keep in mind that although the statute was passed in 2008, the first cases weren't filed toward until toward the end of 2014, early 2015. So this is a statute that even class action attorneys on the plaintiff side were probably unaware of because otherwise we would have seen cases filed. But isn't it straightforward, Josh? We've had, let's say, eight years since the cases started being filed. Okay, fair enough. So that might be an excuse, at least the answer I just gave for the first seven years. But what about since 2015? And I think that's a fair question. Now, I can tell you, and, and you know this because we represent a lot of different types of businesses, big, small, midsize, et cetera. We hear from so many of our clients even to this day, that they were not aware. They are not aware of the statute, even today. Other businesses, other clients we have, they don't think that the statute applies to them for one reason or another. For example, and we'll get into this later, they operate outside of Illinois. So they say, well, my operations are outside of Illinois, even though I might do business in Illinois. Illinois law in this specific statute shouldn't apply to me. Another reason we hear is that they don't believe that they are collecting biometric information. And recall from our first episode, and I think you did this, Mary, that biometric information is defined as any information, regardless of how it is captured, converted, stored, or shared, based on an individual's biometric identifier used to identify an individual, And the statute goes on to define biometric identifier as a retina or iris scan, fingerprint, voice print, or scan of hand or face geometry. So the businesses think it doesn't apply to them. Which is a fair point, because if you look at a lot of the information talking about the technology, the user manuals and the like, a lot of that information actually says we are not capturing a fingerprint or something else. So companies relied on that in the past and thought, oh, okay, you know, the statute is out there, but it doesn't apply to us. And we've also seen cases where manufacturers or others are affirmatively telling 
companies that no, no, BIPA doesn't apply. This technology does not actually capture a biometric identifier. And the business is relying on that information to basically think and go forward in a way that BIPA does not apply to them. Absolutely. There is uh, another subset to that, and that is in the case of software providers. And software providers might be the company that provides the time clock technology or whatever biometric technology is out there. And in their case, we hear from them, they say, well, look, we don't have a direct relationship with the customer or employee. So why should this apply to us? We are just a third party. That is something that is being tested in cases right now. And I think the other thing that is out there, the companies who believe they are in compliance, they absolutely know that they are doing some sort of identity verification, for example, and they know about BIPA. So they've consulted with their attorneys. They've put a policy on the website. They've done everything that would seem to be reasonable to comply, but they still get sued. What about those companies? Yeah, I mean, that just reminds me that one can get sued over anything. Now, you can eventually win the suit, but it costs a lot of money to actually win the suit. And it seems very unfair to the companies that you just described that they're even having to get dragged into this mess because it's not only expensive, but it's time-consuming in the sense that it takes the business away from what they're supposed to be doing every day and from their focus. Correct. And it also has no end in sight because there's so much unsettled law that's still out there. So even though you look at a company like that and you look at the language of the policy, is there fodder there for a plaintiff's attorney to say, oh, no, no, it's not actually compliant because it doesn't have this word in it or a comma is in the wrong place. And then you take that and add on to it and you go through the entire exercise of where could there potentially be a problem and where do those problems exist and are they really problems, yet it's something that would have to be litigated and would probably take years to get to resolution. Well, that's exactly right. And the statute is very long. It contains a lot of words. Like a lot of Illinois legislation, it's not a model of clarity in all places. And and so that, again, provides fodder for lawsuits and for dragging companies in and the like. But to get to your point about companies thinking that they are in compliance or that they have a, a defense, a viable defense to the statute, or that the law is uncertain, we've seen that. And we talked about that in prior episodes where you went over the Illinois Supreme Court's uh, decision in the McDonald case about workers' comp preemption. And that took years to finally get settled, but that was the basic defense that an employer believes that the statute wouldn't apply to it because of workers' compensation preemption. Precisely. And there is a long history of law on workers' compensation preemption, wherein if there is an injury that occurs in the workplace, it is preempted by the workers' comp scheme, not just in Illinois, but throughout the United States. And there were companies that were relying on that because they figured if this occurred in the workplace, workers' comp will take care of it. 
And we've also heard some rumors that the Workers' Comp Board in Illinois was actually looking at this and preparing for what comes down if there are actual injuries that are alleged that occurred because of BIPA, because the Supreme Court in Illinois did leave open that question of whether some of those would, in fact, be subject to the Workers' Comp Scheme. And I would add to that, that the trial judge that denied the motion to dismiss based on the workers' compensation defense said in his order, he said, I'm fine with staying this litigation and having a higher court decide this issue because it's a close question. So, I mean, again, if a trial judge thinks it's a close question, why wouldn't a business think so as well? Exactly. And there are other defenses that we talked about, including uh, whether an arbitration provision uh, applies, uh, what what is the statute of limitations, which we're waiting to hear from the Illinois Supreme Court on, at least for certain sections of the statute, and the defense that, hey, we do not collect, store, or manage biometric information. And in fact, uh, that defense has been successful in some cases. Yes, it has. And I think it's going to be successful in other cases. And we'll talk a little bit about this later. But there are a lot of very viable defenses that have not fully been litigated. And certain courts have touched on them in decisions. But most of those decisions are not binding. Now, we do hear from some clients who say, look, when you weigh how effective this technology is, and let's just go back to the time clock cases, It prevents body punching, and it is a way for employers to measure employee productivity and whether employees are complying with their commitment to give the employer a certain amount of time each day. When they weigh that versus this obscure law that they don't even think applies to them, they're going to go with the technology. And we've had other companies, obviously, who have just, in the face of BIPA, removed that technology altogether. Right. And some companies are putting it in right now. I have a national client who just contacted me and said, well, we're putting a biometric timekeeping system in throughout the United States. We're doing it in Illinois. Here is our policy. We need to know if we're compliant. And that opens a whole range of questions because even though the statute says what should be in a policy, we have had cases where there are arguments about whether that's good enough and what exactly does something mean and sending out that policy to the workforce, what is good enough to get it in front of people. So there remains risk even if a company is trying its best to be compliant. Absolutely. Now, I can say the reality is we're sitting here in the year 2023, early in the year, but the statute has been on the books now for 15 years. Litigation has been going on for at least eight years. And so the message that I think we want to deliver to the audience is get compliant with BIPA. Get an opinion in terms of whether this statute applies to you or not. And if arguably it does apply to you, engage with experts to try to figure out how to get compliant. Exactly. And that's also why it's so important for businesses and lawyers to be aware of the types of cases that are out there so that they can identify and mitigate the risks. Because it's not just the time clock cases. There are a wide, wide variety of cases that have come about. 
Yeah, I feel like we talked a lot about in prior episodes, and even here, I keep talking about time clocks. You've had experience with a wide range of cases, Mary. So why don't you tell us what type of cases are out there besides the time clock cases? Well, there are a lot of time clock cases with all different types of time clocks. You know, you put your hand on the technology, you put a finger on the technology, you have a photograph taken, noting that photographs are specifically excluded from BIPA. So there's actually a lot of different time clock cases and the technology functions in different ways. Some of it we don't think is actually covered by BIPA, even though companies are being sued over it. And then beyond that, there's some pretty interesting ones. I think some of my favorites are the gentlemen's clubs. Um, I had no idea, but apparently if a certain amount is spent in certain establishments, the establishments request that the person who is spending that threshold amount of money put a fingerprint on a credit card receipt so that they can verify who it is, you know, so that they can't come back and say, oh, that wasn't me. Gentlemen's clubs, wow. And Beppa, that doesn't seem to go together, but that really is happening? That is really happening. And one of the arguments there, quite candidly, is if, you know, you have some, you know, drunk guy who has just ordered a bunch of who knows what and puts a finger on a slip of paper, is that in fact a fingerprint that falls under BIPA? So that's interesting because when we're talking about biometric technology, I think of very advanced 21st century technology that requires a lot of expertise to develop and to market and to eventually use. But what this gentleman's club fingerprint issue sounds like is very old school. I mean, this is straight out of the 1950s. This is just a fingerprint doesn't go through any technology. Correct. If it's even a fingerprint or a lot of these that we've seen, it's, it's a smudge doesn't have the whirls and the swirls and the things that the detective in 1950 would be picking up to identify the murderer. And BIPA does, in fact, say fingerprint, but it was passed in a situation with pay-by-touch where you were talking about the technological fingerprint, not an actual hard copy fingerprint where you roll your finger across an ink pad. Mm, Very, very interesting. So what about other types of cases? Well, there's, you know, things like identity verification for various commercial applications. For example, if you want to take certain action like rent a car, that one comes to mind, and you're doing that online, you can put your driver's license in and upload a selfie, and there's a comparison that would occur. And is that a facial comparison? I think it depends on what's happening. If that information is going somewhere and there's a human being who's looking at it, I don't think that's covered by BIPA. Mm. If it goes someplace else and there is you know, a computer that's actually doing a scan of face geometry, then maybe it is covered by BIPA. Interesting. And didn't Facebook get caught up in that? Facebook had um, the situation where it was recommending tagging suggestions. So if you uploaded a picture and it was a picture of you and your sister, it would pop up and say, oh, do you want to identify this person and tag them as your sister? And that was based on some technology comparing the photographs. And that's ultimately what led to that $650 million BIPA settlement. Wow. That is a big, big settlement there. 
So, you know, there's a lot of variety of things and, you know, a couple other just really interesting ones that come to mind are certain companies have taken to using artificial intelligence for interviews of prospective employees. And if they're doing a video interview, there's technology that will look at the face of the person who's being interviewed to determine, are they being candid? Are they nervous? And various other things. So is that a scan of face geometry? Something like that could arguably be covered. Then there are the green cards. So current versions of green cards have a laser etched fingerprint on them. Mm. And employers who might be trying to verify someone's identity to confirm that they're legally able to work in the U.S. Mm. might take a copy of that as verification and put it in a personnel file. And do they need to have advanced consent under BIPA to do something like that? So an employer is trying to make sure that they're compliant with U.S. immigration law. Correct. Could be in violation of a person's privacy. That was one of the cases that we had. And we did file a motion to dismiss on that one based on preemption, all the immigration laws. There's a lot of creativity um, out there with respect to these cases. Well, there, there, there has to be because you, you do one thing to comply with the law in one area and you could get caught up in another. Exactly. So, you know, the other case that I think everyone's talking about is what's going on with Madison Square Garden. Yeah, the, uh, the Madison Square Garden is just a fascinating case. Um, I'm going to provide a little bit of the background and then let's just get into it because it is the biometric case that folks are talking about nationally right now. The New York Times has done some excellent reporting on this. And essentially, over Thanksgiving weekend, you had a, a lady by the name of Kelly Conlon, who is a personal injury lawyer in New Jersey. And she was on this nice trip chaperoning her daughter's Girl Scout troop uh, into Manhattan to see the Christmas Spectacular at Radio City Music Hall, which is owned by Madison Square Garden's uh, parent company. So they're in line to go into uh, Radio City Music Hall, and the security guards suddenly pulled Miss Conlon aside. Her uh, trip to New York took sort of an Orwellian turn at that point. They said to Miss Conlon that they knew who she was and that she was an attorney, and that they knew the name of her law firm, which is just kind of scary. Well, right? it's just creepy. That That is creepy. So biometrics were not, I think, intended for this sort of thing. What happened to, to Ms. Conlon? Well, because she had filed this lawsuit against this company, she wasn't able to attend um, the Christmas Spectacular. You know, the kids weren't able to attend, as I understand, or maybe they were, I guess. I don't know what happened to the kids, but she wasn't because her face was recognized as having taken action against this company. Right. And what's interesting about it is that Ms. Conlon worked for a law firm in New Jersey that had been on opposite ends of litigation with Madison Square Garden. So they were adverse to Madison Square Garden, but she herself was not part of those cases. She was not attorney of record. She was not on the pleadings, none of it. Despite that, the guards pulled her out of the line. They recognized her and they said that she was on an, ex an attorney exclusion list and that she could not get in to, uh, to this particular performance. 
So one might say, well, um, it, something just seems wrong about this. Isn't this illegal? New York does not have a biometric law at all. And it certainly doesn't have anything approaching to what Illinois has. And it turns out that at other Madison Square Garden venues, the same thing is happening to other people. One of their venues, though, is in Illinois. And not surprisingly, Madison Square Garden is not instituting this enemies list exclusion policy in Illinois. I love the enemies list reference. I think that's exactly right. And it is absolutely fascinating that they're not doing it in Illinois. And I question how long they're going to be doing it in New York, because at the end of January, January 24th, the New York Attorney General actually sent them a letter questioning why they are engaged in this type of activity and noting that it very well might violate the New York civil rights laws. Um, essentially, what the attorney general said is that the people who are on the enemies list have been engaged in protected activity because they're exercising the legal rights of their clients, doing something that the company doesn't like. So this is retaliation for that. And the attorney general requested a response. So this is going to be a very interesting ongoing situation. It will be interesting to follow. I would also note that there has been a civil action filed uh, on behalf of Ms. Conlon and others to try to stop Madison Square Garden from doing this. Again, there is no BIPA statute in New York that they can use. Instead, they are using a statute passed in 1941 meant to protect theater critics from exclusion into certain venues. So it'll be interesting to see how that develops. Well, and it's also interesting that this really brings biometrics back into the mainstream press. A lot of these cases that we've got in Illinois, and I think we're up to over 2,000 class actions that have been filed, they're really not hitting the mainstream press. We lawyers, because we're geeks and we practice in this area, are watching things very closely. But this is something that I think will cause the average person to be looking at biometrics a little more closely. I think so. Our big cases like this, interesting cases involving a known entity like Madison Square Garden and others are going to be cropping up. And I wonder about Clear, which allows travelers to go through lightning speed security uh, at airports, but they're using facial recognition technology, whether there are going to be legal ramifications coming out of that. Well, and that's a particularly interesting one because everyone I know who uses Clear says, I don't care. If you get me out of that airport quickly, I don't care what information you take from me. And, um, you know, it's, it's a little bit different, I think, um, because that's something that has truly been instituted by the individual as opposed to, say, Madison Square Garden or an employer or someone else. And it raises a question of, at some point, what responsibility does that individual bear? What responsibility does a plaintiff bear for being aware of things? And if a company is substantially compliant, is that good enough? And shouldn't that be good enough? I would think it should be good enough. And that goes to a defense that we're seeing more and more and that we're raising in our cases in that the individual 
has been going through and using whatever biometric technology for years with their employer, or in the case of a consumer, they haven't objected to it. They know what's going on. Can they really have standing to bring a lawsuit? Exactly. And, you know, that leads into what are some of the unsettled questions here? Because one of the things that I have not seen a court address yet, because most of these cases have not gotten that far, is can a defendant recover attorney fees if they pursue, someone pursues a BIPA case against them and they are the prevailing party? And I think the answer to that is yes, under the statute, because the statute in section 20 talks about a right of action. That's the same section that says that a prevailing party who can prove a negligent violation against a private entity may recover $1,000 for actual damages, or if it's an intentional or reckless violation, may recover $5,000 or actual damages. So first I note that the statute does not say it is definitely a recovery. Mm. There's nothing in the statute that says a BIPA violation requires the award of damages, which is one thing that hasn't been fully litigated. The other thing is that Section 3 of that particular provision talks about reasonable attorney fees and costs. And it says a prevailing party may recover for each violation. Then it talks about against a private entity, against a private entity, the 1,000 and 5,000. But that private entity language is not there where it talks about reasonable attorney fees and costs. Interesting. And I guess it also gets into the question of who is the prevailing party. Let's say there is a a four-year lawsuit on behalf of a putative class that results in a negligible damage award against the business. The business could argue, I guess, that they really did prevail in that case because they were being sued for millions of dollars and the plaintiffs only recovered, say, $5 or something like that. Who is the prevailing party in that situation? Right. And I think that with the attorneys who are out there who are trying to stack the violations, saying, oh, there are a uh, you know, bazillion violations out there. We want $2 billion. I think that's a very legitimate risk. And I think with many of these cases where there is no harm, there are no actual damages, that people were doing uh, you know, the activity for several years, no one has said a peep about it, right. that is a very realistic situation. And just in general, in Illinois, you know, the law in Illinois is that it's not just a plaintiff who can be a prevailing party. So I think that that is something that I am waiting, certainly with bated breath on and waiting for that to go up. Mary, I wanted to ask you, we we talked earlier about businesses operating outside of Illinois. Mm -hmm. And why should BIPA apply to that business? Does it apply to that business? Do you have any thoughts on that? Well, it really has to do with what are the connections to Illinois? What is happening in Illinois compared to what is happening out of state? Because there needs to be a substantial connection to Illinois. And in a lot of these cases, there are some real serious questions about is there anything that is actually regulated by BIPA that is happening in Illinois? Um, you know, for example, the one time clock that I mentioned earlier that takes a photograph. Photographs are specifically excluded from BIPA. It says so right there in the black and white of the statute. And 
that time clock takes a photograph. That photograph is then sent outside of Illinois. Mm. And if there's a comparison of that photograph outside of Illinois in a state that has no regulation of anything biometric, how does BIPA reach out of Illinois and the action of the Illinois legislature reach out of the state of Illinois to a whole different state and say, I am going to regulate something that is not illegal in your state? That's interesting. And it makes me wonder whether, let's let's just take a hypothetical and go with, with the example that you laid out. Let's say that the business who is using the photograph out of state gets a demand letter from a plaintiff attorney in Illinois threatening a BIPA lawsuit unless this business ponies up millions of dollars in damages. One would think that perhaps that business who gets that demand letter might be well served by filing a declaratory judgment action in their home state to get a ruling from the court that, no, BIPA does not apply to them. What do you think about that? I think that's an exceptional idea. And not only in that circumstance, but I think that declaratory judgment actions have been underutilized in BIPA just in general, because going to the question of whether a policy is compliant, there is no reason that a company cannot seek declaratory relief and have a court say, yes, this is compliant. Right. And I don't, I'm not aware of any case out there that has sought such relief. I'm not either. It's an interesting idea. And I wouldn't be surprised, perhaps, maybe after this podcast drops, that we start seeing some of those cases. I will look forward to that. <laughs> and with that said, that great comment by Josh, we look forward to continuing the discussion in our next episode. Thank you, Mary. And thank you to our audience. Very much look forward to further discussions. Thank you very much, Josh. Thank you.